Hello, friends, and welcome to episode four of the Unsunday Show. Thanks for joining me on this episode. I'm glad you're here. I like that little intro tune. It just dawned on me as it was playing this time that it sounds a little bit like the intro to the old Seinfeld series. You know, the, the bass playing and all that going on, and right there at the end, it kind of takes on that flavor. So I'm okay with that. I like that. I like Seinfeld. So anyway, I digress. Hey, in this episode, I thought we'd talk a little bit about leadership and leaders. It seems like in the institutional church setting, at least in most institutional church settings, that that top-down authority, that top-down hierarchy of authority where we've got, you know, bishops over pastors, over elders, over, you know, whatever, just how complicated that whole system gets. I think that kind of gives us a wrong view of leadership. And so I thought I'd talk about that with you a little bit today. Um, it's morning here, and I'm working on my 12th cup of coffee, so I'm finding that I have quite a, quite a bit to say that's uh, caffeine-induced. <laughs> but I want to talk a little bit about leadership today, and, and you know, it's a serious discussion. I think of, when I think of leadership, one of the passage that, passages in the New Testament that always comes to my mind is found in Matthew 20. You know, in Matthew 20, the passage that we're going to read, beginning at verse 25, doesn't come without a context. And the context is that the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, they're called elsewhere, had come to Jesus and asked Jesus to give his, or to give her two sons a prominent position within the kingdom. You know, she didn't really understand the concept of the kingdom, and she came and asked Jesus this question about, you know, when, when your kingdom comes, comes, when your kingdom is in its fullness, can you grant my sons to sit on your left hand and your right hand? You know, giving them a, a, a place of, of prominence. And Jesus' answer to her and to his disciples was this, starting in verse 25. It says, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when I think of leadership in the New Covenant setting, in the New Covenant Church, in the New Covenant Ecclesia. When I think of leadership in that setting, my mind races back to this passage where Jesus said, you know, the Gentiles, of course, he's talking to, to Jews. All of his disciples at this point were Jews. They were Old Covenant Jews, which is why he brings up Gentiles in this passage. You know, Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jew. And Jesus reminds them that the rulers of the Gentiles are kind of scrambling for first place. They're kind of scrambling to get on top of the dog pile. They're kind of, they're kind of scrambling to get to the top. You know, it's like, it's like the corporate America in, in, in many ways, where, you know, the rush is to, become, is to become the CEO or the CFO or, you know, somebody in charge. That's kind of the goal. Nobody's really racing for the bottom. But in this passage... Jesus reminds the disciples that it really is a race for the bottom. That the Gentiles lord it over each other. The Gentiles exert great effort in climbing on the backs of each other in order to get over one another, in order to 
you know, come out victorious and coming out victorious in that setting, of course, is is coming out as though, the, you know, the person in charge, the one in charge who has all the authority. But Jesus very clearly tells his disciples, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And when I think of leadership within the ecclesia, within the assembly, this is where my mind goes to. This is valid leadership right here. This is the the leadership that Jesus instituted within the assembly, within the church. And in my opinion, if the assembly, if the church doesn't have leadership that looks like this, it's invalid leadership. I don't think there's any two ways about that. You know, top-down authority leadership doesn't really fit into this explanation that Jesus gave. Because if anyone had the right to top-down authority, it was the Son of God, it was the Son of Man, it was Jesus himself. But Jesus said that he didn't even come to be served, but to serve. And so service, servanthood, is leadership. Any, any kind of leadership that is authoritative in nature, to me, is invalid. And so what I want to do is look at a couple of examples in Scripture about leaders and leadership and see what kind of uh, conclusions we can draw that would apply to us today in the Ecclesia. Of course, this isn't in Scripture anywhere, but I do like Brene Brown's definition of, of a leader and of leadership. She said this, quote, I define a leader as anyone who takes responsibility for finding the potential in people and processes, and who has the courage to develop that potential. End of quote. And I have to agree with that. You know, based on Jesus' definition of a leader, of a leadership, it's more of a facilitator. It seems more of one who's there to serve in order to find the potential in others and make sure that they succeed. That seems to be more the model of servant leadership. And so I like her explanation of what leadership is. But unfortunately, I see 2,000 years of institutional religion that really has given us the CEO version of leaders. And of leadership, where a leadership is, or excuse me, where a leader is, is someone in charge who is to be submitted to and obeyed, and failure to submit and obey is in many institutional settings met with punishments in various forms like public shaming or shunning or excommunication, and on and on and on it goes. I think that over the course of church history, that institutional religion has successfully redefined and recreated leadership in its own image. And it's almost like we don't believe Jesus' words, or we somehow explain it away when Jesus said very clearly, it shall not be so among you. We don't believe that. And I know I've mentioned that in other episodes, and I'm probably going to mention that in every episode, because I think we need to give it some serious thought, and I think there needs to be some clarity on it, and I think we need to be honest about that issue. We don't really believe that. If we did, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. And in previous episodes, you know, I've talked a little bit about the origin of of our top-down leadership, you know, how, how bishops came to be and and how the, you know, the pastor who was only mentioned one time in the New Testament has been institutionalized. And we're going to come back to that over and over and over and over again in every conversation that we have, probably. And I know I mentioned that before, and, and it, you know, it's important to to keep talking about that because I think what we've done is we've taken this uh, what I would call, I guess, a 21st century version of church leadership and top-down authority, which really has been with us since about 100 AD. But we've taken that model, and we're forcing it back into this ecclesia, which is an organic, living body of Christ. 
you know, we've we've taken old covenant concepts like altars and, you know, buildings and, you know, special days and special events, and we've forced those back back into the ecclesia, back into the assembly where they don't belong. And one of the things that we've forced back in there too is this top-down authority structure. But Jesus said very clearly, it shall not be so among you. And so in this podcast, we'll be coming back and exploring that over and over again. And let me say too, again, that I don't have an axe to grind against institutional uh, churches per se. I think that the model is bad. I think that we need to re-examine that, which is the motive for my podcast. You know, I have friends who are pastors in institutional churches. I was a pastor in institutional churches for over 20 years. And I understand that. I understand, you know, where they're coming from and how this thing happens. And I even understand to a, a certain point the need to be in that. But I don't think it's a valid expression of the assembly. I don't think it's a valid expression of what Christ envisioned for his body, for the ecclesia. And so my reason for doing this podcast again, and I've said this before, is just to ask you to reconsider, ask you to think about these things, to reconsider if what we're doing today in the modern institutional church setting is the best expression of what Christ has for his ecclesia, and let's talk about it. And if it's not, maybe we think about making some changes. But getting back to this discussion, you know, in this type of institutional uh, top-down authority structure that we have today, you know, power flows down and money flows up. And conformity to a preset set of rules is is met through rewards, while nonconformity is met with punishments, like I said earlier. And those punishments, as I mentioned, can take the form of like public shaming or or shunning or excommunication or you know, just all around gossip, just treating people as though they're less than because they're not lining up under the institutionals, their institutions' ideas, or the they're not supporting the institutions' projects or plans, or they're just not supporting the, inst- the institution itself. It can be any of those. Because in our top-down authority structures, people, I think that ultimately what's most important there is that the institution has to survive regardless of who gets hurt along the way. The institution has to live on. Even if the leaders die, the institution has to exist. It has to live on. There's there's something there that makes us think that this institution, this building, this organization, this corporation, which is what it is, it's most likely a 501c3, it is a corporation, that this corporation has to has to continue on. It has to survive regardless. And so the real, the real emphasis becomes supporting the institution and making sure that the institution survives. And the way that we do that is through top-down authority with punishments for nonconformity and rewards for conformity. I mean, we can look around us at, at any institutional church setting almost and see that, see that process in place. It, it doesn't take long to see it. It's not hard to see. It's, it's right there. In a future episode, we'll be talking quite a bit about uh, formal church membership. And let me just say right now that formal church membership is the signing of a legal contract. It's the signing of a document. You're signing a contract with the institution to support the institution. And if you sign that contract and at any time you decide you change your mind, you know, the Lord's taking you in a different direction or whatever, and you decide, well, I don't really support this. This isn't me anymore. I used to, but I don't now. And you decide to stop supporting it and, you know, kind of 
maybe not even walk away from it, but just stop supporting it financially and stop being involved, you'll be contacted. Somebody's going to reach out to you because, again, the institution has to survive. Well, today, in the 21st century, I think we've come to call this good and acceptable leadership. And we think, well, you know, and I've been in conversations with so many people who find out that I've left the institutional setting, and the phrase is always brought up, or the concern is always brought up, and I'm sure it's a sincere concern. I don't doubt that at all. I don't doubt people's sincerity at all. But the concern is brought up, boy, you need to be in a church and in submission to the elders. And, you know, therein lies the the rub, because, again, we've we've taken this model of leadership that we have in the 21st century religious institution, and we've superimposed it back onto Scripture. And we read Scripture, when we read the New Testament, uh, when, when we're talking about leadership, and we're talking about the subject of leadership and what the church is, we take the model that, we've, that we have in this 21st century and we impose it back onto the Scriptures. We insert ourselves in there. And we make it sound like it's about us in the 21st century. But I have a different opinion, and you may have guessed that by now. So let's look at a couple of instances from Scripture. Specifically, there are a couple of passages in Hebrews 13 that, you know, those within institutional settings will often quote to me or quote to, quote to us, quote to you, as proof text for submitting to leaders and obeying leaders because the leader we reason, is in a power position, and the leaders are the ones in charge who must be submitted to. And so I want to look at a couple of popular passages in the in the letter to the Hebrews and see if we can't glean or see what we can glean out of these in light of Jesus' words that it's not a top-down authority and that it shall not be so among us. So let's look at these. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. There the writer of Hebrews says, quote, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. End of quote. The other verse is found ten verses later in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, where the writer says, quote, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. End of quote. Now, I believe, this is my opinion, I believe that we incorrectly reason that the leaders in these passages must be the, pa- the pastors or the bishops or the elders, etc. It's got to be that group of people in the top-down institutional structure because the institution exists in our day with top-down authority having been given to the pastors, the bishops, and the elders, etc. And that authority is given to those people by the institution itself. In other words, it's circular reasoning based on the institutional model that didn't exist when these words were penned, and I think that's very important. There was no institutional top-down authority model that existed when the writer of Hebrews penned these words. So let's explore this a little bit further. Let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. Number one, who are these leaders? You know, the writer of the letter just kind of mentions it in passing. He doesn't spend a lot of time there. He just says, remember your leaders, submit to your leaders. So we have to ask the question, are they pastors, elders, as our religious institutions would have us believe? Pastors and elders aren't mentioned anywhere in the book of Hebrews. And so this would be the only occurrence of that, if that were the case, if the writer of Hebrews was referring to 
our present-day ecclesiastical, you know, pastors and elders and bishops. And so after, you know, 12 chapters of this letter, of course, there weren't chapters when the writer was writing. It was just a personal letter. But in our Bibles, it's, you know, we look at 12 previous chapters, and after the writer writes this personal stuff for 12 chapters, is he suddenly uh, bringing the idea of elders and, and pastors and bishops to us? Are they suddenly popping up here? There's nothing in the context to suggest that. But our institutional church model tells us that this is a proof text for submitting to the elders. This is a proof text for, you know, being a formal member of an ecclesiastical setting of a 21st century institutional Christian setting, institutional church, if you will. And we pull these verses out of context, I believe, and we use them as proof text to show that, boy, this is what you need to be doing. In the conversations that I've had with people, this is this is where they go most often, is they go to Hebrews 13 to these two passages, and they say, see, the Bible says right here, you need to be in submission to the elders. But again, elders aren't mentioned anywhere here or in the letter. Neither are pastors or bishops. They're not mentioned anywhere in this letter. I think there's something else going on here. So we have to ask ourselves the question, then, who are these leaders? And what did the writer of this letter mean when he said, submit and obey them? I think the answer is pretty clear. First of all, let me take you on another little excursion. Let's go to the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, you know, where Paul's talking about spiritual gifts that God has given to the church, to the assembly, for the building up of the assembly. He says in Romans 12, verses 6 through 8, this is Paul speaking, He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Did you catch Paul's words? He's talking about gifts that the Holy Spirit has given, and he mentions the one who leads. The one who leads. You know, leadership is a spiritual gift, according to Paul in Romans 12. It's a spiritual gift. There's a spiritual gift of leadership within the assembly. And did you notice, too, that in Romans 12, that this spiritual gift isn't tied to any elite group within the assembly, like pastors and elders? He doesn't even mention them. This gift of leadership, I believe, can be given to anyone within the assembly, male or female, as the Holy Spirit determines, if I'm reading 1 Corinthians 12 right. The leaders mentioned in Hebrews 13, I believe, could have been anyone in the assembly. I think we take our model of top-down authority of elders and pastors and bishops, and we impose that back onto the text. But in the New Testament, there's a gift of leadership that could be anyone within the assembly. And so I believe that in the context of Hebrews 13, the reference isn't to our modern-day pastors and elders and bishops and you know whatever other titles, honorific titles that we use for them. I think that the emphasis is on the spiritual gift of leadership and that those leaders that, that are mentioned in Hebrews 13 could be anyone within the assembly. So let's think about the context of Hebrews and specifically of Hebrews 13 for just a moment. Remember that the letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of Jews who had been exposed to the message of the gospel and had tasted it on some level, Hebrews 6.5, but weren't totally convinced it was true. At least some of them were on the verge of rejecting it in favor of staying within Judaism. 
It's in that context that the author pins those words in verse 7 of chapter 13 of Hebrews. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of faith or their way of life and imitate their faith. And it's in that same context that the writer says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your, your souls. I believe that these passages are a plea to come to Christ, to abandon the old covenant and embrace the new, to abandon Moses and come to Jesus. The phrase, word of God, in verse 7, I don't believe, is a reference to the Bible or to pastors who have preached or taught them the Bible. There was no Bible at the time of this writing, and there was no top-down authority structure in place for the assembly or within the assembly at that time. Institutional religion existed outside the assembly, not within it. Early Christianity was a religious system, if I can use that word momentarily. I don't like that word religious, but if I can use it for the sake of a conversation here real quick. First century Christianity was a religious system that had no temple, that had no sacrifice, that had no holy place. It had none of the encumbrances that the pagan religions around it had. That's why I said that I believe institutional religion existed outside the assembly, not within it. Secondly, I believe that the, the reference to the word of God here is a reference to the gospel that they had tasted. Again, Hebrews 6, 5. I believe that the phrase, the word of God, is a reference to the message of Jesus, a better priest with a better sacrifice built on better promises with a better covenant. The writer, I believe, is pleading with his readers, consider their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, look at the tangible power of the gospel in the lives of those that have brought the gospel to you as further evidence of its validity. Organized religion tells us that this verse is a reference to pastors who occupy pulpits and preach the Bible every Sunday, but it's not. It has nothing to do with that. That didn't exist at the time that the writer wrote this. It's the same organized religion that insists that the pastors assumed to exist in verse, seven, in verse 7 must be submitted to and obeyed in verse 17 because they're the ones in charge. But I believe that verse 17 is simply another plea to come to Jesus. Obey your leaders is a personal exhortation, I believe, to act on the gospel message by believing. It's not a command to line up under some type of, some type of uh, top-down authority structure and do everything that those people tell you to do in that structure, because that structure didn't exist. I believe that the leaders of Hebrews 13 could have been anyone gifted with the gift of leadership in the assembly, who had befriended these Jewish, Jewish people, brought them the gospel of grace, and wanted to see them come to Christ. Obey them, the writer says. Believe the word of God, the gospel, and act on it. As I mentioned a moment ago, the recipients of this letter were on the fence. They weren't Christians yet. They hadn't really come to faith yet. They were Jews. They were Hebrews, hence the, the letter to the Hebrews. They were Hebrews who had heard the gospel, who were considering the gospel, who were on the fence about believing. And the writer of Hebrews wrote this entire letter to encourage them to embrace Christ. That's the, that's the point of the entire letter, is to embrace Christ. And I don't see the writer of Hebrews as telling these people, you know, in, in, the, in the context of trying to encourage, encourage them to embrace Jesus, I don't see him or her scolding these people and saying, look, 
you need to line up under some kind of top-down authority and get your act together and listen to what they're telling you. You need to whip yourself in shape and, you know, come around to this and submit to your elders and submit to these people. I don't think he's doing that at all. I think he's encouraging them to embrace the gospel. And he's saying, look, the people who have brought you the gospel, the people who have brought you this message of Jesus, look at their life and consider what it's done with them. Consider their joy. Consider consider the outcome of their way of life as further evidence that the gospel is real, that this message is real. Look at the tangible evidence of it. And again, just to reiterate, I don't think that the phrase, you know, spoken to you, the word of God, is a reference to some kind of, how should I say this, is a reference to expositional verse-by-verse teaching of the Bible, because the Bible didn't exist. I think it's a reference to Jesus, who is the word. Jesus was spoken to these people. Jesus was preached to these people. He is the word. He is the word of God. And those who spoke to these people who were considering maybe abandoning the faith completely because they were being pressured to do so by family and by the culture around them, that when the writer says, remember your leaders who spoke to you and and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, he's not at all referencing any kind of a come into the structured assembly and line up under the authority of someone there because we just don't see that authority in the New Testament. That kind of structure is foreign to the New Testament. It doesn't exist. You can't go there to substantiate it. It didn't exist, and I can't imagine the writer of Hebrews saying that it did. And so when the writer of Hebrews, I believe, is talking about leaders, he's talking about anyone within the assembly that could have brought the gospel of Jesus to these people, shared it with them, and they're, they're not totally embracing it. In fact, many of them are thinking about turning away from it because of the pressure that they're facing to do so from family and friends. And the writer of Hebrews is simply saying, look, don't go back into that system. That's the whole point of the letter. If you read the first 12 chapters of Hebrews, that's inescapable. The only sin talked about in the book of Hebrews is the sin of unbelief. The writer of Hebrews isn't talking about some kind of sin by not lining up under elders. That isn't the point. Why would he say that? He wouldn't. Because that system didn't exist. Anyway, I guess I'll cut this off here. I just wanted to share that with you, some of my thoughts on on leaders and leadership. I have an article online that I'll uh, link in this episode for you so that you can read that as well if you want to. It's short to the point, but it deals with this passage. It deals with this Hebrews 13 passage, and really it's an article that this episode is based on. So anyway, until next time, I really appreciate you uh, coming along this ride with me. Let's see where it goes. Later. Later.